Yes, Father, hallelujah indeed. We thank you that all over the world, every day, people are saying hallelujah. In every language, that word comes up, giving praise to God. I thank you, Lord. The word of Christ goes to all nations. Just as the scripture says, all nations will be blessed through him. Thank you, Lord. People of every race and tongue turn to Jesus. Thank you for this vast work that you are doing and we hardly begin to see the, be the beginning of it. Here we are, Lord, just a mere 2,000 years into a vast work of God, building the kingdom, building the eternal temple without hands, building this, this city for which Abraham looked because like Moses, he saw the invisible. Oh, we praise God that we are that city. You're building us up. We thank you, Lord, for the word of God today. And I ask that the word of God would go deep to every heart, that it would come as it should with power and in the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction for the transforming of hearts and lives. Let the word of God rest on us today. Come, Holy Spirit, be our teacher. Put understanding deep into our heart today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes, good morning, everybody. Once more, good to see you all here on this wonderful Sunday morning, the Lord's Day. We thank the Lord for it. Uh, what I'm about to teach you is really part four in a series of, of helpful subjects, interrelated subjects. Uh, the conference we announced, of course, Epiphany had three sessions, and this is the third. But the truth is that last Sunday was really like an important introductory message to, for what has followed on. And if you missed last Sunday, it's one worth catching on YouTube where I discussed the whole meaning of first resurrection and second death and what it means to be priests of God, rule with Christ and, uh, and a host of other things, including the, the judgment of the righteous. It was all in that message. And it helps to clear the mind with respect to understanding some of the book of Revelation. Now, our first meeting in this three meeting series, of course, was Friday night in which I addressed the issue of how to approach the book of Revelation and gave you some background that's very helpful to removing Revelation as a hindrance to your understanding. Because if you think of Revelation as describing something in the future and the end of the world, it will, it will remove most of the Bible from your understanding. But when you understand where the book of Revelation fits and its purpose and the fact that the actual events described in all that symbolism took place 2,000 years ago. And with a little knowledge of history, a little knowledge of other scriptures, you can so clearly see it. Once that happens, it opens up all these vast tracts of scripture to understanding and realizing that in time on earth, those prophecies, what are called the kingdom prophecies, will be fulfilled. Uh, and it's all astounding. So that's, that was Friday night. Last night, of course, we discussed the whole question of what the Bible is talking about when it talks about a new heavens and a new earth. And that was a more detailed message and, and had to be detailed because otherwise you'd need about three sessions. Uh, but if you missed it, that's a very, very important one to grasp because once again, it brings you understanding of so much that's in the Bible. And I mentioned last night that one of the very important principles of Bible interpretation what's called a, you know, a, 
a principle of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the science of Bible interpretation. One of the most important principles is that the Bible must always interpret the Bible. So, for example, when the Bible says there's going to be such a thing as a new heavens, and these things were said a long time ago, you have to ask yourself, well, what is the heavens? What is meant by the heavens? What else does the Bible have to tell us about the heavens? And in particular, what Paul had to say a lot about the heavenlies and Christ's relation to the heavens and what was it that changed with the cross. And when you, when you bring it all together and see the whole picture, and when you read the context, the specific context of those four places where it talks new heavens, new earth, what you realise is it's not talking the eternal state at all. It's not talking about things that happen on the other side of the final appearing of Jesus and the final judgment of the righteous and the wicked. It's not talking about what we call the eternal state or the consummate kingdom. It's actually talking about things that happen in history, on time, uh, sorry, in time, on earth, with the, the continuation of Adam's race being dealt with by the gospel. In other words, Certain key changes in God's dealing with the human race are each described as new heavens and a new earth, each described as a destruction of the old heavens and the old earth. The flood was described that way. The establishing of the old covenant at Sinai was established that way. And, and under the old covenant, when he promised a new heavens and a new earth, he's talking about what would happen as a result of the death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and the final judgment and destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and the old priesthood, all of that taken as a whole was the destruction of the old heavens and the old earth and the establishing of a new heaven and a new earth. But you need to look across the expanse of rather vast tracts of scripture to see that, oh yes, it's, it's very wholesome thinking and, and highly attested to across many statements in scripture. Well, today we come to the question of the New Jerusalem. And New Jerusalem is a part of the new heavens and the new earth. You, you can't actually separate these two things out. But we just focus down a little bit today so that within that context of new heavens and new earth that came along with the, the, the work of Jesus and him being raised up to the highest heavens. And, and so see, that, that means there's a new government, there's a new administration, he wiped out a whole lot of principalities and powers in church history. He's wiping out more. He's, he's establishing a whole new administration and government in the heavens. That's the new heavens and a new earth. Life is different on earth, but we detailed that in uh, you know, a fair bit, of, fair bit of detail last night. Okay, here we go, some scripture. Haggai 2 uh, and verses 6 to 7. Take a look at those words on the screen. For thus says the Lord of hosts. Now this is a prophecy of Haggai, hundreds of years before Jesus. Thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more. Now, now stop on that phrase for a minute. Once more. Only once more will he do this. Which implies he's done it more than once before. And he had. This, this change of the heavens and the earth. This, this re-establishing of things that you can't see in the spirit realm that so affect life on earth. The, um, he, but he says, yet once more, this prophet says, in a little while. Now he's prophesying about the coming of Jesus and the gospel and the complete change. Uh, old covenant to new covenant. Take out of you the heart, of, the stony heart, put in a heart of flesh. 
no longer live by the old way of the law, but by the, the new way of the spirit. I mean, the Bible has endless things to say about it. But look, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Now, this, this shaking, now remember, yet once more, in a little while, this shaking of the heavens and the earth and the nations, Jesus mentioned it. But when Jesus mentioned it, he was talking specifically about it being the immediate outcome of the destruction of Jerusalem, the temple and the priesthood and the whole Levitical economy. Here's what Jesus said, Matthew 24, 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. That means God will turn his face away and withdraw his word, withdraw his grace. You know this symbolism when you study the Old Testament. And the moon will not give its light. This is, you know, there's... there's the, It's still a removal of grace. The moon is a symbol for Jesus, actually. And the stars will fall from heaven. That's that's a reference to prominent people. In other words, a removal of philosophies, education, governments, prime ministers. In other words, this is the symbolism for the final destruction of a nation. And this symbolism is used over and over in the Old Testament. It was used with regard to Babylon, with regard to Egypt, with regard to Idumea, which are the Edomites, and with regard to Old Testament Israel. This is what Jesus is speaking to, and he's saying that it applies to the tribulation of those days, and the days he was talking about were the days in which not one stone would be left upon another in Jerusalem, and the Romans would come and destroy the city. But look at his final phrase, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So not only would all this stuff happen on earth, the visible stuff, which actually was de- destroying you know, the old things that, were n- that no longer pertained, the old religion. But he says the powers of the heavens will be shaken. In other words, what Haggai prophesied, Jesus is here prophesying, and in Jesus' case, there's only 40 years to run. When you get to Hebrews 12 and read about the shaking, there's only 10 years to run. Hebrews 12, Hebrews 12 is quoting Haggai. At that time, his voice shook the earth. What time? He's talking about the giving of the covenant at Sinai. When the old covenant was given, the voice of God shook the earth. This is history. And so with the the old covenant, he was shaking the earth, but with the new covenant, he's shaking the heavens as well as the earth. So at that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he's promised yet once more. See, yet once more is this quote straight out of Haggai. I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Now, the reason I've given you this introduction to the new Jerusalem is I want you to see the word remain right there in Hebrews 12. Do you see it? Four lines up from the bottom, right in the middle in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. That word is very important to us in just a moment. And um, where do we find it, this word remain? Here it is, Isaiah 66 and verse 22. Take a look. For as the new heavens 
and the new earth that I make shall remain. So this reference in the gospel to the things that shall remain, in other words, the new covenant, the grace of Jesus, the work of salvation, the gospel, the building of the eternal temple without hands, the building up of the body of Christ, this transforming of nations by the gospel. This is the thing that after the final shaking, like yet once more, after that final shaking, these are the things that remain. So look at it again in the words of Isaiah, as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me. See, we're talking something on earth. This is, in other words, this is the, the final establishing of, the, of the, this huge last phase of salvation history, also called, by the way, the age of the Gentiles. Why is that? Because in the gospel, he removes all the hostility between Jew and Gentile and makes one new man. You'll notice that in the book of Revelation, this mighty angel comes, which is a, probably another way of representing Jesus, actually. Once you understand the symbolism, this mighty angel comes and he, he plants one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. But as I said last night, that symbolism of sea and land the sea in the Old Testament scriptures is the symbol for the Gentile world because it was, it was deep and it was dark and it was unknown and it would foam, it was restless, there was turmoil, the, the tossing and foaming of the sea. And that's why the primary beast in the book of Revelation is said to come out of the sea. In other words, it comes out of the Gentile world and it's a reference to the Roman emperor and the Roman empire the beast out of the sea. But the book of Revelation has another beast that comes out of the land, out of the land and that's the land of Israel. When he plants one, land, one foot on the sea, one foot on the land, he's talking about taking charge, having authority over, standing on the entire world, all nations, Jew and Gentile. And, and the book of Revelation has a beast that comes out of the land as well as one that comes out of the sea. Interesting thing about that beast is it has Horns like a lamb. In other words, pretends to be spiritual, pretends to be godlike, but speaks with the voice of, of a beast, of a, of a lion. Book of Revelation, the symbols are wonderful when you actually know what they mean. And because uh, even some of us are still beginning in, in thinking all that through. <clears throat> However, remain. This is the, what we have now is the final version of the heavens and earth that we shall have prior to the final judgment of Jesus, but this period under this heavens and in this earth will go on for a long, long time. So now we can go to Isaiah 65 and uh, we'll, 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 well, we'll follow the passage through on the screen and just show you a few bits. What I want you to see in this passage, by the way, look at the opening two verses. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. In other words, the new Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem is something that is in this new heavens and new earth, as you will see, and that in a minute will be a subject. We read on. I will, well, well, what I'm trying to show you by this passage 
is that this is not the eternal state. It is life on earth for people who breathe air, have babies, build houses, live a certain length of time before they die. In other words, it, it is life under the gospel, vastly improved by the power of the gospel and the grace of Jesus. We read on. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. This is verse uh, 19 we're up to now, yep. And the sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. You might say, well, we've still got weeping and crying, so we can't be there yet. Well, I'll show you something else yet. Verse 20, this, this is where life is going to on earth as a result of the word of God, the grace of God. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at 100 will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach 100 will be considered accursed. Once upon a time, this would have thought to be heaven, but actually newspapers now for quite a while have been talking about this kind of thing uh, developing even now in the world, that people are going to live much, much longer lives. As you know, infant mortality has fallen way away and it will keep improving as a result of the outworking of the gospel in the world through um, you know, scientific discovery and every other thing, but it is the result of the gospel. Um, verse 21, they will build houses and dwell in them. They'll plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them. In other words, change is taking place in the world. Now remember, but through the gospel. But remember, this is called by the passage, the passage that begins by saying, I'll create new heavens and a new earth, describes the new earth is speaking of spiritual realities, not physical ones. And of course, I gave you a wealth of information last night to understand that. Now, in which case, in which case, let's now go to the second place in the Bible where it talks of these things. And this is Isaiah 66, verse 10. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her. Now, when we read Jerusalem in this context, think the church, think the body of Christ on earth with the gospel, the true Israel of God. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast. Yeah, this is the church, the body of Jesus, that nurtures people, that comforts people, that brings people into the life of the church, into the fellowship of church. When you, when you join with the church, you join with Jesus. When you join with Jesus, you join with the church. He puts the lonely in families. This is a hugely rich fellowship and supremely important People who neglect the church neglect their own souls. People who drift from the church usually drift from Christ. The church is life-giving. The Bible says the church is the pillar of truth. It is here. We have the table of the Lord and holy baptism and the preaching of the word of God and prayer for one another, the fellowship of the saints. Life is rich in the church and this is the ground and pillar of the truth. No wonder it says here that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. It's because the glorious abundance of Jesus is, is made known to the church. It's placed in the church. It's what you come to drink from. Verse 12, for thus says the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river. Now this brings to mind two things. First of all, peace the eternal covenant made in the blood of Jesus that makes us the church at all is called the covenant of peace. 
And not only that, but Jesus said that for those who followed him and believed on him, out of, the, out of their innermost being would flow rivers of living water. So when you, when you come into the covenant of peace, the Holy Spirit is given to you and living water flows out of you. That's what's referred to right here. Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. Yes, he says repeatedly in Scripture, you bring the glory of the nations into the, the new Jerusalem, the house of God. And you shall nurse, you'll be carried upon a hip and bounced upon her knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. Ah, this brings to mind what Paul said about the heavenly Jerusalem. What did Paul say? Here's what he said. She corresponds, uh, this, well, he, he says, Mount Sinai in Arabia, Mount Sinai, in other words, the old covenant, corresponds to the present Jerusalem, that's the earthly one, for she's in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. And so we find this mothering, the, the, the church is your mother, that is the heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem is your mother. You should be comforted in her you shall see, verse 14, and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass and the hand of the Lord shall be made known to his servants and he shall show his indignation against his enemies. That passage continues. Let's continue on. Because it's when you read the context, this is what's so important. When you read the context of this talk about new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem, you find it is very, very much about life on earth, breathing air, resisting sin, walking with the saints, receiving the nurturing of the Lord. In other words, living well on earth under the gospel. So now, now let's read what he has to say in the following few verses because he talks about the wrath of God being visited upon the old Jerusalem and there only being survivors. The survivors, of course, were those who came into the church in the days of the apostles. So here, let's follow from verse 15. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury. His anger in fury is the wrath of God and it was the wrath of God that is described in the book of Revelation, was described by Jesus in Matthew 24 and which was visited upon Jerusalem as Jesus said, upon this generation will come the blood of all the saints. And that, that was the, his anger in fury visited upon the old Jerusalem, the old system, Verse 16, for by the fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Next verse 17, this will make you uh, confused, but don't worry, it's easy to clear up. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens following one in the midst eating pig's flesh and the abomination and mice shall come to an end together. He had, he had in the previous chapter said that a time would come when people who offered uh, you know, lambs and rams and grain in offering in the temple were to him as those offering uh, pig's blood. Meaning once Christ had been sacrificed for sins, those who clung to this old system of animal sacrifices, it, it was anathema to him. Uh, we don't have time to go into it. But verse 18, he's speaking about Jerusalem of that day. For I know their works and their thoughts and um, 
that's carried on from the previous statement. But then he starts to make these amazing positive ones. He says, the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. Think now the day of Pentecost. Think of all the tongues on the day of Pentecost. Think of all people gathered from all the nations around in the Roman Empire and beyond, by the way, from Arabia as well. And they all heard the gospel, all received the Holy Spirit. He says, the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues and they shall come and see my glory. You see, once Christ ascended, Holy Spirit poured out, church filled with the glory of God, he brought all nations. These people went back to all nations. It's astounding. They shall see my glory. Remember Jesus said to his father, I've given them the glory you gave me. And he says, and I'll set a sign among them. Do you know what that sign is? Jesus told us what the sign was. It was the final destruction of the temple and of the priesthood because he said immediately after the tribulation, in other words, the tribulation was three and a half years, right at the end of that tribulation, he says, the sign, I explained this last night, the sign, um, then will appear the sign that the son of man is in heaven. So that's, that's the sign It was that destruction. He says, I'll put a sign among them. The other sign, by the way, because the Bible speaks of two signs, the actual pouring out of the Holy Spirit and speaking in multiple tongues, he also said in the Old Testament was a sign that he was going to give. And uh, so, you know, all this happened in that same period. Anyway, from, um, oh yeah, I'll set a sign among, this is verse 19. And from them I will send survivors to the nations. Now, to, to Tarshish and Paul and Lud and, who, and, um, and to coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. This sending survivors to the nations, this was the elect. Um, the, the days of tribulation was cut short so the elect would be saved. This was the church. Not one Christian perished in the destruction of Jerusalem. But these Christians, full of the Holy Spirit, went all over the world gossiping the gospel. And that's what's being described here. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. And verse 20, and they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations. The Jews had never regarded people of other nations as brothers, but under the gospel, under the cross, remember he removes the dividing wall of hostility. He makes Jew and Gentile one new man in Christ, so now they are brothers. These Jewish evangelists goes out. The apostles were Jewish evangelists. There were lots of other Jewish evangelists because ultimately added to them Gentile ones. But he said, they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord to my holy mountain, Jerusalem. You see that phrase there, says the Lord, and so on and so forth. And, and verse 21, and some of them and I will also take for priests and Levites. Up to this point, only anyone from the tribe of Levi could be a, Le uh, be a Levite, that, that is a, ser a servant in the temple. And only anyone descended from Aaron could be a priest. But now he says here, he's going to take priests and Levites from the Gentiles. See, this is the, this is the whole new deal under the Lord Jesus. And look at the very next verse. Now he's been describing all this, a gospel process, destruction of Jerusalem, day of Pentecost, sending out the gospel, Gentiles coming in and look at what he now calls it in the very next verse. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me. So the final shaking has been taken place. Now the new heavens and the new earth were a great reality. And says the Lord, so you shall your offspring and your name remain. And uh, from new moon to new moon, Sabbath to Sabbath. That's why this is not yet the eternal state. We're still in time, still here with a, you know, calendars and, and days of the week and so on. 
So, having said all that, I can now take you to the passage that you really think is about the new heaven and the new earth from Revelation chapter 21. All right, take a look now. This, this famous passage, lovely passage. Now I want you to read it with new eyes. Instead of reading it as a description of the final state, after the final judgment, the consummate kingdom, you know, eternity, kind of in heaven, bliss. Start reading it as if, what's this telling us about the future of life on the earth with the gospel, with the church? What's it telling us about the ideal church in the earth? What, here you have a description of the, the ideal life that the gospel is meant to bring about and progressively is bringing about. In other words, you not, not necessarily how it began or even as good as it might be now, but, but ultimately what it achieves and what it is like and um, in principle. So we read it with those eyes. John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. That little, that's an interesting phrase. If the sea is no more, it doesn't mean there's not water. It doesn't mean there's not oceans. It doesn't mean there's not uh, rivers and lakes. In fact, there is because to start with, there's a fantastic river that says, runs down the street of this new Jerusalem. But of course, that's the Holy Spirit. But no, it's not that there aren't bodies of water. This is a symbolic reference to the, the Gentile world is not now excluded from the, the commonwealth of Israel and the covenants of God. That, in other words, that exclusion no longer exists. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. Right off, we know this is the church. The church is a heavenly people. There's a, there's a sense in which it's given from heaven to the earth, it's here. He says, he says, in fact, coming down out of heaven. And I heard a loud voice, verse three, from the throne saying, now this, friends, is a hugely important statement. I heard a voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Notice this is not, not us dwelling with God in some eternal state. It's him dwelling with us on earth and if you go through the scriptures you will find that again and again and again the Lord expresses this as his heartfelt desire the thing that he was working for all along from the very beginning it's written in the book of Leviticus it's written into other books God's ultimate plan was that he would live with us he would walk with us he would be our God, we would be his people. And here John is proclaiming that as a result of the gospel, this has become a great reality. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Verse four, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. Now, hasn't he, hasn't he done that for you? Doesn't he continue to do that for you? See, if you read it as the final state, you think they're, there are no more tears ever, but we're living in a life where there are tears, there are issues, there are problems, but we happen to live in a life where we have a huge comfort, a huge grace, and God is actually called the God of all comfort. So in, with, with the word of God we have and answers to prayer, 
and the Holy Spirit present, bringing to us the presence of the Father and the Son, and the love of brethren, our helping of one another. Yes, he wipes away the tears from our eyes. And it says, and death will be no more. Now, you've got to go back to the first lesson I taught last Sunday about what is the meaning of the first resurrection. If you're in Christ and you've been born again, you've experienced the first resurrection and Jesus says of you, the second death will have no power over you. This goes back to John 11, where he said, he who lives and believes in me will never die. And he's talking about spiritual things, not physical things. That's you. Death has been overcome. If you're a believer in Christ today, death has been overcome already. And yes, the body will die and the body will be resurrected. But all the while you're living in another great reality altogether. I mean, John Wesley, when he lay dying, it was only his body dying. John Wesley said, oh, best of all, God is with us. You know, he was, he's been carried by angels, you know, all the while. Now death has been dealt with in Jesus. Neither shall there be mourning, crying, pain anymore for the former things have passed away. You've got to see it as describing the outcomes of a process, not something fully formed the minute it was given, but with the birth of the church and the release of the gospel, a process had been done in earth, bring about astounding changes. Verse five, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Notice he's referring to an ongoing process, not an instantaneous creation. Also he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty I will give. Notice, notice he's talking future, what he will do. In other words, there'll be ongoing thirsty people I will give. Uh, where were we here? From the spring of the water of life without payment. That's the gospel. We're talking about an age in which the gospel is preached and the thirsty can find their thirst quenched in Jesus. Verse seven, the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. It's in this life you're called to conquer. Verse eight, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be. Notice it's future tense, will be. In other words, they're still here. But, but it says what will be the, the outcome. All right, finally, uh, finally and briefly, a few features of this new Jerusalem that is the church on earth under the gospel. Revelation 21, 14, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. As soon as you start talking apostolic foundations, you know you're talking about the building of the church. You go to Ephesians chapter two, you can read all about it there. Uh, now, verse 22 of Revelation 21, and I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. Yes. The physical temple was destroyed so that another temple could be established and we are in that temple. You, 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 are, you live in it, you approach Jesus freely. When, when he says, come boldly to the throne of grace, that's temple language. You're coming right into the Holy of Holies. That's where you are in prayer every day. And verses 24 to 27 of the same chapter. Now remember, we're talking New Jerusalem. Think again, New Jerusalem on earth, the church, on earth, verse 24, by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And verse 25, its gates 
will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. You can see right off, it's not talking the physical light that comes from the sun, moon and stars. What's it talking about? Christ is the light. If you read these chapters, you, it actually is written here that God and Christ are the light of the city. And so uh, there'll be no night there means, look, you can wake in the, I, I wake in the middle of the night and it's pitch black, so black that if I head for the door, I've got to find the knob, but my soul is filled with light. And if someone rang me in that moment and said, look, look, I'm struggling and I have a problem and would you pray? I'll pray for them, filled with light and power will go out because the gates of the new Jerusalem are never shut and it's never nighttime there. You, you must ap appreciate the power of metaphor. If you interpret all this stuff literally and materially and physically, it is so wooden and so dull. But when you understand the metaphor, it is so alive. Praise God. And, and um, verse 26, they'll bring into it the glory and the honour of the nations. Now, this is the church, remember, the body of Christ. And, um, and right now, I mean, the, the astounding stories of nations in Africa and, and other parts of the world that the gospel is so transformed and, um, and transforming. And the best, the best is yet to be. But look at verse 27. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor does anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You know what that means? The only people who are truly in the new Jerusalem on earth are the born again. Because when you're born again, you're declared righteous and the sins, your sins are washed away. You, but well, to the point here is, your name is written in a book. It's only those whose names are written in the book. In other words, you've been born again who, are, who actually live in the new Jerusalem and drink of the water of life and so on. We're almost done, but now you know more clearly what Hebrews 12 and verse 18 means when it says, you have come to Mount Zion. Who was this written to? It was written to believers who were alive on earth right then. They were Jewish believers. They were in the church. They were in the body. They were on earth. And almost 2,000 years ago, the scripture written to them was, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. They were in the heavenly Jerusalem while living on earth because the heavenly Jerusalem is something that God has given us from heaven and it's here and it's here for the transformation of nations. It's here for your comfort and your succor. It is here as the ground and the pillar of truth. It is here to strengthen the believers and to keep you safe and to keep you in Jesus. It's here to be a blessing to the nations and the nations bring their glory into it. Kings bring their glory into it. You've come to that heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels, innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. That's what it is. And to God and so on and so forth. And the writer to the Hebrews concludes just a few verses later by saying, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom. 
past tense, we've already received it. Be grateful, we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That was the whole point. Yet once more I will shake the heavens and the earth so that only the things that can't be shaken will remain. And the thing that remains, of course, is the gospel, the grace of God, the church of Jesus on earth, the kingdom of God on earth. It cannot be shaken. Read with me now this final passage of Scripture as a communal reading. And I want you to see that even though this is different language, different vocabulary, in a sense, you might think, oh, it's a different subject, but it's not. The New Jerusalem is the church on earth. And we are now reading about the church on earth together. Now, this will be a responsive reading. I will read the odd ver- number verses. You read the even numbers. It's only reading 11 to 16. I mean, what is it, half a dozen verses. But when we read this passage, which is often too familiar, I want you now to see in at all that I've said. So, ready to read. Here we go. I'll read one, you read the next. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until We all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then you will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become Friends, this is a huge statement. This this would be the biggest statement in the whole Bible. Instead, we will grow to become, in every respect, the mature body of him who is the head. This is on earth. That is Christ. Okay, last verse, everybody. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Praise God. I invite the musicians to return. Join me on the platform. And uh, we're going to pray for a few moments. And we're going to sing. And uh, even though this, this morning is more of a lecture, because, you know, this is a conference meeting, uh, you know, giving out or attempting to give out anyway um, vital information for your understanding. Yet nevertheless, you have to come to that point with the truth. Here come, musicians will come. You you must come to that point when the truth is before you that it has a response from the heart. You you can't be passive and sit back and think, oh, well, that's interesting and and go your way. You have to give your heart to the truth. You you have to embrace it. it. It has to be taken into you and you into that. You have to apprehend it and and let let this, you know, this astounding eternal truths uh, embrace you, apprehend you. And, and you live by it. You know, you walk in the light of Christ. So look, in closing, could I say this? Your life counts. And either you're counted amongst those who are full of that living water and you change the world because you truly are the new Jerusalem, 
or you're of that other kind of which Paul said, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. There are people in churches who confess the faith, but according to Paul, they live as enemies of the cross of Christ. You've got to decide whether your, your heart is in this. You want, you want to bear fruit under God. You, you want to bear 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. Your prayer should be, Lord, I want to bear fruit. In other words, you want your life to be useful in changing this world. You walk with Jesus if you're prayerful, if you're full of love to all the saints, you search his word, let me tell you, you cannot but help to be fruitful because he will make you fruitful. Don't live as enemies of the cross, careless, materialistically, you know, pleasure-seeking, worldly. Don't live like that because it's not profitable for one for the world or the kingdom, but it's certainly not profitable for you on the day of judgment. No, live for Christ. Live for the truth of the Word of God. Bow your head with me just now. And just take this moment that in the, in the heart of hearts, in your own heart, just recognize your heart is yielded to Jesus. Yield the heart. You be at peace with God. We've received at the table of the Lord this morning in more than one way. Receive it to yourself. Just say, Lord, I receive your spirit. I receive your word. Ask the Lord to continue to transform your life and make you fruitful. I ask you, Lord, that by the grace of God, not one of our people would be fruitless, but they would be believing. And that in one way or another, according to the light you give them, their lives would count wonderfully for the kingdom of God. Lord, I thank you for our dear people. May the spirit of the Lord rest upon them. The word of God be alive in them. Your grace flowing to them constantly. I ask you, Lord, that in body, soul and spirit, you would perfect them, preserve them blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus. At this time, protect them all from sickness or disease. I ask you, Lord, you'd grant everybody in peace long life, long life and good health and energy and vigor, but especially, Lord, that energy which is the motivation that comes from much love and understanding of the truth and from the gospel. Lord, would you give us all pure hearts in, in pursuing Jesus and living a life that is honorable, honoring to the Lord. Make our lives count, Lord, because only you can do that. So Holy Spirit, come. Rest upon every one of these believers. Lord, your peace. Place your peace even now upon marriages and homes and hearts, upon their work they do, the days of their lives. I commend them to your grace. Ask that you would fill them with all joy in believing God. And now, Lord, make them a fruitful people every day, this week and all the days to come. I commend them to your care. And thank you for the love and mercy of a living God. Amen. Oh, 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 oh,